I wish I knew about this tie rule. <laughs> um, but no, well, you know no now. Yeah, now I know. But how am I going to BS the answer on the spot? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest Plot Devices mini episode. The thing that you've probably been waiting for if you're a fan, I don't know if you are, you're just stumbled on this randomly, but welcome. Uh, this is Plot Devices. It's a show where people talk movies and TV and sometimes other things. I am one of your hosts, Brandon King, alongside my co-host, Noah Guzman, who you can't see on our non-existent Zoom call because that's all we're doing, but he's holding something. Noah, what are you holding? It is my newest Funko Pop to my, just takes up one shelf. It's not a collection, okay? It's not crazy. I'm not addicted. It is Geralt from The Witcher. My partner has Yennefer. I only felt it more necessary for me to go and get that amazing duo that we have on Netflix right now. And only $14.99. I couldn't believe that. I was like, okay. So it's my new Funko Pop. Hello, Brandon. Introduce us to our third guest. I'm so happy to be here with a third today. This podcast is sponsored by Lunchbox. Also, uh, or Box Lunch, I should say. Damn it. Ah, that was such a good joke and I failed. You know who doesn't fail jokes? Our special guest for today is one of the funniest people I know. And you probably know her from the show before. Samantha Incorvaya is back on the show. We got her back. Sam, how are you? It's a very nice compliment. I don't know if I'm like the funniest person ever, but I will take it. I'll take what I can get and I love it and appreciate it. (laughs) So, uh, no, I'm great. I'm really happy to be here. My compliments are eternal and I will stand by them. Uh... The topic of today's show, if you guys have not read the title of the episode, it's The Inevitable. It is our top 10 films of 2021. This has been a long time coming. We've been teasing this for a couple of weeks. The editing stuff has been a nightmare, but we're finally basically caught up on schedule. But before we get to our list, and we do actually have some TV mentions to go into as well. Before we get into all that, quick question I want to pose to the group. Let's talk about 2021 in film as a whole, because it's been... Maybe a more wild year than 2020. At the very least, we had a part of 2020 that felt normal. This was just a complete wild ride all the way through. Uh, Sam, I want to go over to you. Rating from 0 to 10, uh, in terms of film of 2021, what is your thought? Like a solid 7, because there were a lot of really, really good movies, some of which gave me some of my favorite movies ever. But at the same time, I felt like a lot of movies this year were also really long, and they dragged a ton. So... You know, kind of balancing between those things and and movies that were very okay that I don't like to talk about, I'd say a seven. If we're talking about the industry as a whole, it's a very solid five for me because if we're talking about things behind the scenes, there is a lot that we can get into and a lot that I'm not happy is happening right now. However, if we're talking about the roster of films we got, spoiler, this is one of the toughest top ten lists I've ever had to make. There was so many, there was so much good content this year, and I found it very difficult to narrow it all down. So. Very solid 7.5 for me. I really enjoyed a lot of what came out this year. Uh, Noah, are you more on a, whose side are you more on? I am going to be even higher on the ladder. I'm going to give this year a solid eight. I thought that HBO's announcement to have same day release has really changed how I approached um, like new movies this year. And that made every uh, picture that was available on HBO Max just like, something that I could invite my family or my friends to, to sit down in the living room and enjoy together. And I have nice memories now of a year being at home um, and taking in some excellent releases. In addition to uh, some nice surprises this year uh, in animation, or sorry, sure in animation, but also in musical categories in horror. And I just can't wait to dive into that. But I thought this year was a, was a pleasant surprise given the rest of the world. I think that's a completely fair assessment, actually. Uh, Let's, before we hop into our actual film list, and we do have a lot of films to talk about, 
Uh, we wanted to give some brief mention because this plot devices is, you know, partially TV and we want to give it our credit. Uh, we reviewed a lot of stuff this year. We didn't review a lot of stuff this year, but we saw some very good shows overall. Uh, Noah, I want to go over to you first, if you're okay with that. Uh, your favorite TV shows in no particular order from 2021 that stood out. I'm going to have to just dish these out to you because we want to spend the bulk of this episode on those top 10 lists. So here are my five um, must-see TV from 2021. It's going to be, in no particular order, Midnight Mass. That's on Netflix. You got Disney Plus. I got three series that are from Disney Plus. And of course, you know, two of them are Marvel. So it's going to be WandaVision and Loki. I found those both to be excellent additions to MCU's roster. And I also have The Mandalorian season two, the addition of uh, Ahsoka Tan and uh, that nice surprise at the end of season two was just so, so much for us Star Wars fans to just nibble on. And then finally, it's the series that we covered here on the pod. Only Murders in the Building is my fifth must-see on the uh, 2021 TV. I will go next on that. I also have WandaVision Season 1 and Mandalorian Season 2 on there. Again, Mandalorian Season 2, for fans, I think, drove a lot of traffic to Star Wars that had been lost, along with just really great characters and really great storytelling. WandaVision basically changed the way the MCU was looked at it from fandom, I think, forever. I think that show was more of a phenomenon than we will realize, and I think in the years go by, it will establish that following that I think it so deserves. Uh, I am also going to go with a show that Noah turned me on to, Arcane Season 1. Uh, maybe one of the best things animation-wise Netflix has ever done, and that's saying a lot because I love a lot of Netflix animation, but I was really just blown away by this first season. I, I'm so happy it's getting a second season, but the first season is just so consistently great. Um, also, I list Why the Last Man Season 1. I'm really sad we're not getting a season two, but you know what? For what we got, I thought it was actually really good. The drama really worked for me. The characters were interesting. The setup never felt tedious. Um, and I just was really impressed by what it delivered. And last but not least, it's, yeah, Only Murders. That show is a ton of fun and it has no right to be as good as it is. And I was really just surprised by how much I was entertained by it as well as enthralled by the mystery of it. So um, WandaVision season one, Mandalorian season two, Arcane season one, Why the Last Man season one, and Only Murders in the Building season one are my best TV of the year. Same onto your list. So mine, uh, actually, a couple of them didn't overlap, and I was surprised that they didn't. I don't know why. Um, so mine are, of course, Loki, Made, which we reviewed on the pod, um, Dope Sick as well. Uh, Dope Sick, I was shocked by how good it was. You know, it has it had its moments, which I already griped about on the pod, but still, amazing show. What If and uh only murders in the building of course so that's our our mutual between the three of us only murders and i you guys already covered the reasons why it's the best it's amazing can't recommend it enough and um yeah i, I feel like loki for me was the one that that really changed my opinion of the character as well like not just how the mcu shows its um media in a you know series format because wandavision did that perfectly but then i think loki added another element to it and really opened up an extra gaping hole in this metaverse in the in, in marvel and i just think it's really exciting in that way made in dope sick are both great great dramas so overall you know definitely recommend those two very solid list, very solid list overall. Uh, but let's like, go away from TV. It, it doesn't matter. It's the new medium. It doesn't matter. We're talking about movies here. Uh, let's talk about movies, specifically our honorable mentions for our top 10 films of the year. 
first off, uh, we're, we're going to be doing this as we've done for basically the other mini, uh, the other mini sods we're going to be doing down in terms of whatever setup my Zoom camera is, which in this case is Noah, myself, and then to Sam. Uh, we'll be going through our honorable mentions first one by one, and then 10, 9, 8, and so on and so forth. We'll recap our list at the end. Uh, maybe have some weird discussions along the way. Hopefully it won't take too much of your time. It inevitably will. Noah, over to you for your honorable mentions. What movies just barely missed the cut for your list? All right, so we all decided we were going to list off 10 of them. So here I go. I'm sorry I didn't take note of the directors, but I hope that you know what these titles are and the teams behind them because they are excellent. I'll list off the ones that I do remember. So it's going to be James Gunn's The Suicide Squad did not make my list. Wolf, Lin-Manuel Miranda's In the Heights, The Night House, The Protégé, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, Black Widow, Free Guy, Encanto, and Spider-Man No Way Home. I know. I know. That's it's a shocking. hot take. It's a hot take, but I found wow. that I really appreciated my list when I looked at it and I and I go, I'm happy there's only one kind of sequel in this. And I, and I like that. I like that a lot of my takes are, you know, original entries or, you know, there are adaptations, but um, we'll get into that when we start exploring our lists. Brandon, over to you. I will say, just, I was shocked The Conjuring 3 made your list. I haven't seen that on anyone's list this year. Oh, it didn't make, it didn't make my list, but it made my, almost made my list. Right, I mean, it like- It made in, the almost list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it anywhere in the visible space of a list is what I mean. Um, <laughs> let's, let's go over to my honorable mentions. Again, this was really rough to narrow down. Uh, however, also on my own mentions, James Gunn's The Suicide Squad and John M. Hughes in The Heights, both of which I love, the latter of which got me back into movie theaters. Also on my own mentions, Pixar's Luca, which is just delightful, and I had so much fun with it and deserves to be seen by more people. Uh, also I want to mention Limbo, uh, Ben Shark's Limbo, which I'm ashamed to say that I didn't finish my review for, uh, a movie about Middle Eastern refugees in Scotland that just goes nowhere, and it's kind of beautiful in how it goes nowhere. Belfast. Kenneth Branagh's Belfast barely missed the cut for my list. I really adore that movie. Sean Heater's Coda, which I just love. The ending made me cry. Enough said. Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir Part 2, which I really, really enjoyed. Julie, I think, is one of the most fascinating characters of the year. Um, and it's a great sequel in many ways that I was not expecting. Uh, David Yellow's The Waterman, a movie that no one saw that it's on Netflix right now. It's his directorial debut, which maybe we'll talk about in the future. Brings back to mind a lot of like the Amblin adventure movies, but in the best kind of modern context, I really liked it. Um, Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth, which we just talked about recently on one of our taped episodes. Uh, there is No Evil, which is an Iranian film that I really kind of like the way it kind of shifts perspective about the death penalty and capital punishment and, you know, the, the articulation of violence that I really appreciated. And last but not least, uh, two music docs, because I am a music nerd. Edgar Wright's The Sparks Brothers, which I just found so damn fun. And I know it's not technically a movie, the Beatles get back. I love it. There's an IMAX presentation going around. It counts. Also, as part of my list, I always give a best, uh, I give a biggest su present surprise at the end of every year. Uh, previous winners go to Sonic the Hedgehog and Barbershop the Next Cut, among other movies. This year uh, is probably the most serious take I've ever done on this, that being Michael Pierce's Encounter. Uh, screw the critics. This movie is great. Uh, I love what it does emotionally. I love Rizamit's performance in it. Lucian River Chohan is a talent to watch. It is a movie that I was not expecting much from, and I really appreciate it. So rundown of my honorable mentions once again, The Suicide Squad, In the Heights, Luca, Limbo, Belfast, Coda, The Souvenir Part 2, 
The Waterman, The Tragedy of Macbeth, There Is No Evil, The Sparks Brothers, and The Beatles Get Back. Uh, after that library of information, Sam, please narrow it down for us. I'm happy to hear about The Waterman because that's something that a lot of people don't talk about. So No one awesome did, and it was really good. Yeah, I, I personally haven't seen it myself as well. So that's why I'm I'm just happy to hear it on somebody's almost list, if not the actual list, you know? Right. Um, okay, so for my honorable mentions, also very hard. It's funny, you know, for those of you listening, I was thinking to myself, how am I going to think of 10 movies to mention as honorable mentions? Easy, banged it out within like a minute. So that's really a shame. That's how much <laughs> um, content. It's true. Um, so my honorable mentions, no particular order. Uh, Raya and the Last Dragon, absolutely adored that, loved that movie to bits, but I just didn't, it didn't make the cut for the top 10, but oh my gosh, was it so close. <laughs> um, Eternals, I really enjoyed Eternals. I know it was polarizing, but I honestly really loved it because it was so not a Marvel movie, like a typical Marvel movie, and that's why I loved it. Tender Bar, really sweet. Couple times where you could argue, yeah, not that original, but at the same time, the cast is what makes it feel really original and authentic. Really great movie, just about a coming of age kid and, and everything like that. The Harder They Fall, really fun cowboy, like Quentin Tarantino like movie, but not by him. I really appreciated the style of that, had a lot of fun. Blue Bayou, really good drama, needs more attention. I think it's one of the most underrated films. It's it's so, so good. Annette, I know, is Brandon's very okay fit. <laughs> favorite um sure. but no i really liked annette for the sparks brothers music in there and um i really liked the story it was very avant-garde but uh, i liked it surprisingly shang chi really appreciated for the representation the story alone can't wait to see more shang chi in the future with marvel uh jungle cruise because it just kind of brought this nice nostalgic air to to the movies again like if as if you were watching another indiana jones movie or something had tons of fun the rock and emily uh blunt just have great chemistry Luca also had Luca on here because, I mean, one, if you know me, it's Italian. Love Italian stuff. <laughs> but also it was just a really nice story just about friendship. And I really appreciated that. And uh, The Courier also. I, I really liked The Courier. And I think that's also another movie that wasn't really talked about much last year. Um, and stars Benedict Cumberbatch and, excuse me if I'm pronouncing the name wrong, but Mirab Ninitz. Um, but it is that story about uh, Benedict Cumberbatch playing a, a Cold War spy, like a British Cold War spy. Um, and he works with a Russian source. And it's just such a good movie. And the two of them have great chemistry. So, again, to cap it all off, I'll repeat them. Ryan, The Last Dragon, Eternals, The Tender Bar, The Heart of They Fall, Blue Bayou, Annette, Shang-Chi, Jungle Cruise, Luca, and The Courier. So... Let's get on to the list proper. Start with Noah. You're number 10 when he I'm comes here. back. <laughs> I'm here. All right. So my number 10 is from director James Wan, Malignant. I don't know how many hey. of you saw Malignant. That's right. It made my list. I don't know how many of you saw Malignant, but this is this, this is that wild pick for my final entry. We're working uh, bottom to top, of course. It's my wild card because you may think it's one thing, but until that final act, you will not be prepared for what's to come. I love a movie that packs a surprise and makes it feel 
I don't know, genuinely surprising because nowadays I feel like surprises and suspenses movie are like, oh my gosh, it actually wasn't the killer you thought it was. Or, hey, insert minor detail that we forgot to mention in the first act and now it's important. Well, you are not ready for what's coming at you if you go see the movie Malignant. From James Wan, it incorporates similar moves that you've seen in Insidious. You've seen them in The Conjuring and you think that this is like another rinse and repeat. But this haunted tale played its cards all too familiar so that you could feel safe. And then it flipped it on you. It's horror, not gonna lie. It's a little bit of Matrix action as well. And for that, it deserved its spot on my top 10 of this past year. It is James Wan's Malignant. Moving on to my number 10, it is the first auto mention that Sam mentioned. And I truly love this movie. Ryan the Last Dragon. Uh, this movie's epic. Um, and the funny thing is I've seen this debate in like the animation circles that I kind of run into like, oh, you know, and, you know, Encanto got more fan art in like the last month than, than Raya's gotten in the last 12. So why does it matter? And I'm like, because it's epic. Uh, I love the story of Ryan the Last Dragon. I love the characters of it. I, I love Ryan. I love kind of her journey throughout the movie. The supporting cast are a ton of fun. I, but beyond what it does for Asian representation, uh, what it does with, um, with James Newton Howard's score is tremendous and i love what he does with the work visually it's stunning again i do think that luca and Encanto maybe do better things in terms of animation wise but as far as raya goes it's just tremendous i watched it the, again about a week ago and it just it holds such a special place from the earlier in the year i wish i had seen it in theaters i really do but i'll be happy to have it in my number 10 i think it's tremendous for my number 10 it is actually a sequel and it is actually a horror movie it's a quiet place too oh okay. um yeah I, I was gonna say it's nothing too out there for me i'm a very safe horror person um i, I honestly consider a quiet place too more of a thriller but long story short really appreciated it john krasinski's back i felt like it was just as good as the first one because usually that's really hard to do with sequels and i i liked that it gave us more context on how this post-apocalyptic world started that was really cool to see in the first like 15 minutes and then continue right where we left off um so i definitely appreciated it i thought that it flowed really well too, the storytelling and everything so yeah for me that is my number 10 my number nine is going to be a mention of Sam's. It's going to be Shang-Chi and the Legend of Ten Rings, directed by Destin Daniel Cretton. In a post-Endgame MCU, I'm not sure me or anybody really knew what to expect from a new Marvel entry. That being said, Simu Liu smacks it out of the park as a title character. Um, not only is he so great to watch, but he also plays a, a very likable character um, who's fun, who's um, in his adult life and kind of just figuring things out. And that's always fun to see uh, in our Marvel characters, see a little bit of ourselves. And um, it feels free of the formula. And I think uh, what pays to that is how um, how it looked like all of the action sequences were based heavy in the martial arts that were behind them. Um, and I love the central focus on Shang-Chi and his sister. I have an older sister, so of course it hits home, but I just love to see their relationship really bloom on screen. She's a force to be reckoned with in her own right. And we know at the end of Shang-Chi that she kind of has this power now and or at least like, you know, this little mini empire. So I can't wait to see what they do with her character. So I had to include this as my number nine, Shang-Chi and the Legend of Ten Rings. On to my number nine. Uh, this is a movie that I'm sure is going to be very high up on Noah's list. Uh, and originally this was supposed to go to In the Heights, 
and it wound up just sneaking in there for the best musical of the year. It's Tick, Tick, Boom. I can't deny just how full of, and I could say the same thing about In the Heights, that they are both full of life and wonder, but also very realistic expectations and very grounded sense of passion and artistic value to it. At the end of the day, I give Tick to Boom just the narrow edge, I think just slightly for the musical numbers. 30, 90, I keep singing over and over again, louder than words, I keep coming back to uh, No More is a bop. Like, I keep finding more reasons to go back to the soundtrack beyond just the movie itself. Like, Lemon Miranda, I think, shocked all of us, I think, especially me, for how well he directed this and how focused his direction was. Stephen Levinson, it doesn't make up for Dear Evan Hansen, but it comes close. Uh, I really respect what he does with the dialogue for this. And then, obviously, you know, the reverence they have for Larson's legacy is tremendous, but it's Andrew Garfield's show. Like, you come for it for him, and he is dynamic and eccentric, but again, he very much has that sense of realism to him, and it is a character and a performance that I think anyone can latch on to, and I think that's why it appealed so much to me, and I think why it's been taking award season by storm. In terms of, like, my, you know, predictions for Best Actor, he's there, except for not the dream predictions. We'll get to that. Uh, but as far as my top 10, Tick, Tick, Boom, more than earns its stripes. It's so much fun. It's so exciting. And it is a story that I think is, yes, manipulative, but it's universal enough to be completely beloved. And I completely respect it. I can't believe Brandon chose the musical. <laughs> I didn't mention West Side Story, darn it. <laughs> I'm on board with this. I love that you chose Tick, Tick, Boom, Brandon. I'm so excited. Um, So then for my number nine, I actually put Dune. And that, for some reason, I actually surprisingly put pretty low on that list. Um, No given reason. It just had really tough competition. But Dune, I just appreciate the director, directed by Denis Villeneuve. And I already liked a lot of his stuff beforehand. And so I think he was the perfect director to take this on. And it's just a whole new sci-fi epic, in my opinion. I think it just adds a lot um you know in that category of movies and it's just it's oh my gosh i can't even go more in depth on it without going on and on it's just so beautifully directed beautifully shot like for its cinematography the score is so eerie i love it it's just amazing and honestly i like it just as much as the original because i ended up watching the original a few weeks later and i i like it for being more mysterious and giving more room for the viewer to interpret things in their own way without description so i honestly i really appreciated it for that and that's why it's my number nine sam we're having the same conversation my number eight is dune so um it's just so convenient that we actually uh ended up going in this order but uh what more to add literally my notes say <laughs> what more to add i know this is on your lists um bank on based on the frank herbert sci-fi epic this movie's epic anyone who has seen dune or if you've heard about timothy chalamet and zendaya oscar isaac rebecca ferguson's new movie this movie's tremendous um with the scale that it um that it doesn't attempt, it just executes so well, um, whether it was all of those beautiful scenes of a ship landing without it looking too Star Wars-y or looking like something else. Like, this looks like the universe of Dune. Um, being a fan of big, huge monsters, this movie's got big old sandworms, and seeing them in action has to be, like... It, it's like hair raising on your arms. It makes you scared. It makes you kind of existential because these things are referred to as gods on the planets. And so to see them in action was just um, a tease for what we're going to get in that part two of Dune. Um, 
I really just have so much, I, I was so happy to be introduced to this new sci-fi world that would have just gone past me had they not remade it. So yes, uh, beautiful team behind it. I cannot wait for that next, um, for that sequel in the next entry. And I really just encourage you all to check it out. I don't think it's on HBO Max anymore, but hopefully it returns to streaming soon because uh, this movie was epic. Is there any point in me now talking about our first shared movie of the list? It's Dune at number eight. Uh, yeah, we're the best. We this synergy right here, this synergy, girl. This was not discussed before recording, by the way, fam. Just to let everyone know who's listening, <laughs> this if, is great. <laughs> but if you listen to our twenty-minute-long review. Is it really shocking? Uh, like, Denis Villeneuve made a staggering epic in 2021. I, I, I'm so honored that I got to see this in IMAX. Like, it was an experience on a technical level alone, let alone a narrative level. I've never cared about the novel. I think the original is hit or miss. But Denis Villeneuve really took the story and made the nuance of it pop, made the cast of it pop, you know, in tremendous capacity, uh, Greg Fraser cinematography, uh, Patrice Vermette's production design, Joe Walker's editing, it, it all comes together so well under Denise's direction. And it is singular and it is epic and it is in your face. And I love every second of it. And I'm dying to be able to see it again, maybe in a theater again. And I'm, I'm just so happy we get part two because I want to see this continued so much. But yeah, this was staggeringly good. It deserves all the praise it's getting. I love this movie. Let's see if we could do this again. So my number oh, eight, boy. my number eight, is West Side Story. So okay. <laughs> I all I heard was okay. Now I'm scared. I don't know if hey, and okay. you got finger guns, finger guns on my end. Not saying anything. <laughs> so with West Side Story, I absolutely loved it. I already liked the original, and I already liked the story. Classic Romeo and Juliet told in a different way in New York and two different street gangs, uh, Sharks and the Jets, of course, but. I thought that it was a really nice love letter to the original and it stands really well on its own. I mean, of course it's easy to compare and contrast between the two, but it's just, I don't know. It, it just solidifies why um, Steven Spielberg is still one of the best directors that we have in Hollywood right now. And I just really loved his, his direction for the film. So it was really nice to see. I really liked to cast music of course was catchy can't get enough of the America dance number and the entire scene for it. Um, so I just really appreciated West Side Story a ton. Also love musicals, so shout out to them. So uh, West Side Story is my number eight. This is kind of a surprise I've been holding for my fellow co-hosts. Uh, you, y'all, I decided about two hours ago when I was get, uh, getting my final notes on this thing that I really wanted to make sure I didn't miss out on this movie. I watched last night in Soho and it's my number seven. Whoa. I, I was so happy. That's to, awesome. I, I had to, I had to after being like the horror fan that I say I am and missing out on the, on the opportunity to uh, review it on this podcast. I checked it out from Edgar Wright. We have uh, the star Thomas and McKenzie in this frightful tale of a fashion student who for some reason or another begins seeing visions of London in the sixties. And what her visions follow is an aspiring club singer played by Anya Taylor-Joy. 
what Wright does with color in this movie is amazing. I am so attracted to its unique appeal to the eye and it's very like dramatic storytelling. It felt uh, earlier, this was mentioned like a movie was feeling nostalgic. Uh, I felt like last night in Soho was that nostalgic feel for me. It, it didn't try in from what I saw <laughs> hours ago. Um, it didn't try to be some uh, grand impactful story, but it told a nice little like mystery that, had a nice wrap up at the end. Um, Anya Taylor-Joy's rendition of Downtown by Petula Clark is available on YouTube. It's down tempo. Everyone needs to listen to it. It is remarkable. I think I listened to that scene and then I replayed it three times before advancing with the movie because I wanted to just stay in that room with her singing. Um, Diana Rigg from Game of Thrones makes an appearance in this movie and her performance is also great. After the climax of this movie, it becomes kind of panicked and, you know, it, it definitely becomes uh, sharp without looking for a better word. But it was a thriller. It was a mystery. And I was with it for the ride. Uh, Last Night in Soho by Edgar Wright is my number seven. I have a rule for my lists, which is that I can include one tie if that tie reflects a movie that was supposed to come out last year and wound up coming out this year because no one except critics could watch it. This is my tie. Number seven is Come On, Come On and Nomadland. Uh, Both because I think they're slightly similar movies. They're both movies about people who are lost in some way trying to find themselves in a world that won't let them in a lot of capacities. But I also think they're both brilliant movies. Like what Chloe Zhao does in Nomadland is well-documented. And I think, you know, what she does with it is staggeringly wide and vast, but also mysterious and Fern is such a great character to focus on. It, you know, Sam and I and our friends have been discussing the ending for a while. And, you know, if you, if you know, you know. Uh, Come On, Come On is also tremendous. I love Mike Mills as a filmmaker. I don't think we did get to talk about it on the podcast, uh, but I did really genuinely enjoy it. And I think Walking Phoenix, yes, is great. Woody Norman is tremendously good in this. I don't know where Mike Mills find this kid, but he's such a fine. The music is great by Bright Desner. And it is a movie that focuses on really subtle elements of humanity and life and our society where it is now, but also where it will go that just got me thinking a lot as a movie. And I really just, I really just respect it a lot. So my number seven is my one tie. Come on, come on in Nomadland. I don't even care. I wish I knew about this tie rule. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, well, you no know problem. now. Yeah, now I know, but how am I going to BS the answer on the spot? I guess, honestly, Nomadland would probably be the same thing for me too, because I saw it later. For my actual seventh, excuse me for stalling. My actual seventh movie is one we already discussed, and it's actually Tick, Tick, Boom. So I put my there two we go. in a row in the list. <laughs> but no, Tick, Tick, Boom, it, it surprised me because I know that I sounded kind of lukewarm on our pod review. But honestly, the more I thought about it, the more I found myself humming along to the freaking oh gosh, I can't think of that. Dun, 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 dun. What is that song again? 3090 Apartment. Oh, no, yes, no, no. Uh, it is there. Oh, boho that's days. Boho days. Boho, yeah, because I, I was going to say Soho, and I'm like, that ain't it. <laughs> See, I don't even know the names of the songs. But um, but no, that song was so catchy to me, and I absolutely loved how Sunday Brunch was like a love letter to Broadway in general. But no, it was just a really nice look into Jonathan Larson's life. And um, Andrew Garfield, again, you, you come for Andrew Garfield, and then you stay for him as well, because he's just amazing here, proves he could hold his own in a musical, and I, I can't get enough of him. I think he's a real threat when it comes to the Academy Awards and, you know, best actor, to be honest. But um, yeah, so you all pretty much went in the reasons why Tick, Tick, Boom's already awesome. So um, that's all I got. 
I will start our number six. We're all nearly halfway done with our list. Number six is a familiar title. It is Marvel's Eternals, directed by Chloe Zhao. Um, thank you. Let's talk about how hard it is to balance 10, an ensemble cast of 10 main characters. When you have a team like the Eternals led by um, Salma Hayek's Ajax, you know, how could it be done? You watch Eternals and you realize how that can be done. You realize how you can tell um, a story that has the scale of a, a celestial in the Marvel universe and telling that without bringing back iconic characters or even flashing to a, a familiar character in the MCU. I don't think that we have that, um, you know, that character flash in the Eternals movie, but it still is so wonderful. It still fits in the MCU. It still um, tells an emotional story, uh, having its highs and, uh, you know, emotional highs and emotional lows. Um, I It's hard for me to bring up a downside with this movie because of how much I enjoyed it. I returned to it uh, recently because it was released on Disney Plus and I just found myself even more attracted to it, not turned off by the runtime at all because around that midpoint, we just get to be introduced to, um, another layer of our character Fastos and seeing how he builds family in the modern world. And I, and I really love that chapter of the story. Um, this was hopefully big news for what the future can hold for the MCU. Uh, because before now we didn't know what a celestial was or what this, what this thing emerging out of the sea can mean for our Avengers heroes when they come flying by and go, Hey, what the hell is that? <laughs> this is uh, the equivalent to something like a God. It builds planets. And um, I was just so, I was so ready to sign on to a Marvel movie that started Angelina Jolie. And um, it was, I was pleasantly surprised by how well done this was. Um, Sam mentions that it was polarizing. I'm happy that us on the pod can agree that we were on the nice side of what uh, this movie meant for us. So number six is Chloe Giles Eternals. It's also because we've got good taste. I'll just throw that out there. <laughs> I concur. Uh, my number six is passing. Rebecca Hall's passing with uh, Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nagar. Which, by the way, my tweet review of it went viral in like the Netflix community on Twitter, which is weird. Um, so it gets a little bit of brownie points for me. Uh, as far as the movie itself goes, it's brilliant. Uh, I was not expecting Rebecca Hall to be this good coming out of the gates. You know, it, Noah and I, we talked about The Lost Daughter on one of our recent episodes. And I agree, that is a really good directorial debut. This is a great directorial debut. Uh, Rebecca Hall has a firm stance on yes, who the characters are, yes, the pacing of the novel, and yes, the nuances of it, but also much more on the the quietness of it. The idea of this is a time and place that is kind of locked in its own facade of racism and its facade of xenophobia, that these two characters, Irene and Claire, played beautifully, by the way, by Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nagar, are just trying to navigate and have to weigh their own biases and their own transitions and their own consequences of one another once, uh, against each other. The supporting cast is great. Edward Grau's cinematography is compressed and dark, and it feels like everything is starting to close in on you as it is the two lead characters. The script is well-written. It has a ton of nuance. There's so many tiny moments that you can point out in, again, Naga and uh, Thompson's performances that just really stand out to me. And it is a movie that has joy and vibrancy, yes, but is also very much a movie that is a statement about you know, a long, tragic history about racial passing and that just really hit me on an emotional level. And side note, if you can watch the uh, Finding Your Roots episode with Rebecca Hall, do it. It's a fascinating piece of television that really goes into the idea of like the Black diaspora in the 1800s and things like that. So, but again, Passing is a film. I'm so glad I got to see it. It blew away my expectations. I really, really appreciated it. 
I'm glad you got to see it too, because I feel like that's another movie that not many people are talking about, except for those people who saw your tweet. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just glad that you, you mentioned it on your list. Um, I have so influence. For my, yes, you do. And don't tell yourself otherwise, you know, <laughs> um, my number six is Mitchell's versus the machines because that shocked me in all the good ways. <laughs> when I first saw the trailer, honestly, I didn't, really I, I wasn't that jazzed because i was worried it was going to be like one of those dated like edgy teenage girl like angsty oh my parents suck oh i'm just gonna throw in these like funny memes and drawings i don't know i totally pegged it wrong i watched it absolutely loved it it's so genuinely funny the cast is really great in this and it's just the animation's beautiful honestly i feel like this will also rival the best animated feature for the academy awards as well i feel like that's going to rival the giant that is disney and um but it's just uh, mitchell's versus the machines it's a really great family movie it was a really nice surprise early on in the year and it's something that i constantly talked about for the rest of the year to recommend to people on netflix so um, that one's my number six Moving on to number five, mine is Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. Okay, um, I like to be in America. Okay, by me in America, everything free. In a, oh, not that one, sorry. Um, there's so many fresh faces in this movie that are just phenomenal. Congratulations to uh, characters of Maria and Anita because their portrayals awarded both actresses a Golden Globe. We saw those wins in Rachel Zegler's Maria and Ariana DeBose as Anita, and they... They really, they really blew me away. Uh, having having been involved in a production of West Side Story, that story, <laughs> the story, uh, really, you know, strikes my heart. It makes me feel near and dear to it. I had high expectations because I knew the level of production that went into this film. Even the bar that I set was way too low for what Spielberg was able to accomplish in this film. When it comes to color, um, when it comes to, like Sam had mentioned earlier, cinematography, paying attention to this movie makes it easy to recognize what great cinematography is because this is what it is. And you go, wow, this movie just has some kind of nice touch to it. I like it more than others. It's because of like so many things, but the cinematography is um, one of the focal points that I wanted to emphasize. And um, I, I have not, and this is a, this is a typical uh, practice of me. I have not had that soundtrack on repeat, but as soon as I get off this pot, I'll probably listen to that soundtrack top to bottom uh, because I tend to do that with any musical that I find and until I hate it. And then I go back and then I love it again. Um, so West Side Story is my number five. Oh, this is going to be awkward towards the end, but let's get to my number five instead. Uh, I don't think either of you have this on your list. Number five is Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, my favorite documentary of the year. Uh, this Are either of you familiar with this? I'm familiar, but it didn't make my top, so you are correct in that. <laughs> this is uh, Questlove's director debut from uh, The Roots, obviously, from a bunch of things, one of my favorite drummers of all time. Apparently a fantastic director, too. He basically got hundreds of footage from the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival and turned it into one of the most exciting concert films I've ever seen. Uh, I'm so glad. Again, I wish I'd seen this with an audience because this is a this is truly a concert experience with everything from the fifth dimension to an amazing performance by Sly and the Family Stone, who basically inspired me to go back and listen to their greatest hits. But beyond that and just the musical talent of it and the restoration of it, which is beautiful, I also found it really poetic about the alternate side of 1969 music culture, because so often we think of, you know, Woodstock and the turning of, you know, uh, the vinyl decade and 
going to glam rock and things like that. And this is me going to my music territory, and I'm so sorry. But we also get like a really kind of poignant version of uh, Gil Scott Heron's Whitey's on the Moon contrasted against people talking about the value of the space race. And when you get something like that and you see that angle of it from a very populist point of view, it makes the whole idea of that decade and what we have framed it in terms of music history in a completely different light. At least for me, like I know there's probably people who are like, ah, oh, you're an idiot. You probably didn't do it. And fair enough. I, I very much am an idiot. But I love this movie. I love how exciting it is. I have revisited the soundtrack a bunch of times. It's on Hulu. Go stream it. If you're any fan of like late 60s, early 70s soul slash Motown music, you need to be watching it. And again, I think it has something really important to say that Questlove kind of sneaks in there. And I'm so glad he did because it's really necessary. It's another movie I'm glad is on somebody else's list. Um, so I'm glad you're really pulling out the ones that a lot of people aren't talking enough about. So I'm I'm really happy about that. Um, for me, my no, that's a good thing. Don't make that. Brandon just made a face just to let all of you know who are listening and can't see our faces. This it, is my normal face. <laughs> um, so my number five is Belfast. So I think that was mentioned. Yeah. Honorable mention. So Belfast does have my heart as, you know, one of my favorite scenes the entire year last year, which was that everlasting love scene. Um, but it's, it's just such a nice story about a family in the middle of this tumultuous time between the Protestants and the Catholics in Ireland. And, I feel like it's also another phenomenal job. Um, you know, it does a really great job of showcasing its ensemble cast again. And I feel like that's been a theme with all my movies that I chose in this top 10. But anyways, they're amazing. The story's really great. And I like that there's such a huge personal touch to it with Kenneth Branagh directing it as well. Um, so I just think it has a lot of heart. And and the kid is so, so funny. He does an amazing job in the movie and, and is really the heart and soul of it. But uh, Belfast overall really loved it. And I know the audience I was with absolutely loved it, too. It was an early screening, um, not like a press one, but just like an early opportunity that our local theater was showing. Um, but Everyone was so excited about the movie, and I couldn't help but smile along with everyone, too. So, um, number five, Belfast. Number four, directed by Kerry Joji Fukunaga, No Time Whoa. to Die. I oh, can't yeah. believe it. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Daniel Craig's departure was beautiful in No Time to Die. Uh, additions of characters in Ana de Armas and Lashana Lynch, who plays like the new 007, uh, worked perfectly in a story that had high stakes, um, intense gun action, um, you know, thrilling interrogations that make you feel like you're Christopher Waltz on the other side of that glass with Craig looking right at you. Um, it's globe trotting. It is, uh, it's our international smooth suave spy. And I love to see him, uh, especially having this be his final chapter. Um, you know, my, my notes don't include much, but we do have an episode where me, um, me, uh, Brandon, as well as Sky, was a guest host on our pod, and we all covered No Time to Die. I highly encourage you to go check that one out. Um, this movie has a lot to attach yourself to. Beautiful cinematography, beautiful score. It won Billie Eilish Best Original Song for the Golden Globes with her song, No Time to Die. And um, it's really worth the watch. I you know, I, I didn't expect a Bond film making my top 10 list in the years prior. I'm ha- very happy to include it as number four on my top 10 of 2021. I am shocked. I, I'm not shocked I made your list. I'm shocked I made it that high. Because I know we were both high on it, but I didn't know you were that high on it. On to my number four then. Uh, from here on out, these are all near masterpieces to me. I think they're all truly brilliant. I mean, all of these are great, but I think all of these above are just the ones that I felt straight in love with. Particularly- They're all my the, favorite child. 
They're all my favorite children, uh, except these, the six we just talked about. Those are like somewhat favorites. Um, this is one that Sam brought up, and it is not only my favorite animated movie of the year, it might be the most fun I've had this year in a movie. Uh, Mitchell's Breast of the Machines. It's so good. Uh, Noah and I have talked about it because he caught up on it and we talked about it on the podcast the other day. I don't need to reiterate myself. This movie is staggeringly good. What Mike Rionda and Phil Lord and Chris Miller do and their whole team, it's magic on this. Uh, it's a movie that should be so stupid and so cloying and so just really not work. And yet every second of it works for me. The jokes are hilarious from the death burbies to like the uh, to the cop dog shorts to everything like i was laughing hysterically throughout i love the characters katie mitchell is again to me like one of the most interesting characters definitely in the year maybe an animation that i've seen in a long time i think she's so real and you know i get ah sam's got the moose you can't see it but she's got the moose and i'm kind of jealous uh but again like if we're going to the moose the emotional core of the movie is so there and so real and i know i said this on the review but i love how this is a movie that yes villainizes tech and yes, puts a mirror up to our reliance on tech, but it never puts it to the point of like shame. Like the reliance on tech spoiler is what saves the day, like learning values and learning technology and learning how it can be utilized between, you know, families and communities. And that's what saves the day in the end. And like, again, it's a movie that could have been so lazy and so coying. And yet I just had so much fun with it. I was laughing hysterically. I was tearing up at times. I really liked the family. I really do hope we get a sequel in some capacity because I just love the character so much. And Fred Armisen and Beck Bennett as the robots are just gold. I could watch them for days. Uh, this movie is gold and I hope you all watch it. And Rupert for Oscar season, darn it, because not going to get any love. Uh, Arbor to Sam. I could totally see them doing a sequel with like something like VR or something. And then we have her in film school and college with it. I don't know. I can imagine something crazy like that. I want um, that now. So Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so my number four is uh, the fan, I'm sure fan favorite, Spider-Man No Way Home. And the reason is because of how much fun I had with it. And so... I didn't think much of it. I know we went through our, you know, mini-sode of how much we love Spider-Man and how much the character means to us. And so that's why, you know, I don't have to really rehash it. But number four was just this perfect embodiment of celebrating what it means to be Spider-Man and what he's been like to us in the movies thus far. And it was just really fun. Yes, there were moments that were fan-ficky about it, but it's like, I totally ate that up. And it's done well, in my opinion. And the storytelling is really great. The movie flies by and uh, quite literally on a web and everything in between. But anyways, it's just, uh, you know, it's just one of the biggest cinematic events of last year, as proven by domestic box office records, too. But it was just really phenomenal and um, had a ton of fun there. So number four, Spider-Man, No Way Home. Oh, also real quick. I also forgot that with um, John Watts, it was the best Spider-Man movie that he directed, in my opinion, easily, easily the favorite. So. Number three, I'm still working on the review, okay, but it's Cyrano, directed by Joe Wright. This movie is, of course, a musical um, starring Peter Dinklage, uh, Haley Bennett, and Calvin Harrison Jr. This movie uh, should feel um, familiar for anyone who's seen the half of it. It's a lovely, romantic interest in Haley Bennett who falls headfirst into love with a soldier, played by Calvin Harrison Jr. But here's the thing, the soldier is bad at writing. Like, he sucks at writing. So, um, um, Haley Bennett's character 
character, Roxanne, needs somebody to be able to speak on her level in love letters um, in order to win over her heart. So who doesn't suck? Oh, just her longtime friend, Cyrano, played by Peter Dinklage. So uh, Peter Dinklage um, agrees to protect this soldier at the request of Roxanne. And then the soldier, of course, recognizes his lovey eyes with Roxanne. So he asks Cyrano to be the writer of his letters. And so now Cyrano is exchanging love letters with Roxanne, who doesn't know that that, uh, Cyrano is pretending to be a man who he isn't. And the whole thing just plays and pulls at your love triangle chords uh, wonderfully, um, beautifully. I didn't know this was a musical until the first song started. So you can only imagine the smile that spread across my face being the musical fan that I am. Um, having kept up with Peter Dinklage after witnessing him on seven wonderful and one okay season of Game of Thrones, I was so happy to see him uh, return in like a, a main character role and do so musically. Um, this movie just has so much love in it and there's choreography that in is inspiring there's swordography there's dough kneadingography they turn everything into a dance number and it just looks amazing on screen i had the opportunity to watch this in theaters so cyrano is at number three i'm so jealous you got because i'm really excited for it uh on to my number three again this was tough and the fact that at one time this movie was a high awards contender it does not seem to be anymore. And that's a really big shame because Spencer is tremendous. And it's my number three. Uh, Pablo Lorraine, again, I had problems with Jackie. I have very little problems with this. I think he refined everything that I thought didn't work about that movie into this. It's so, again, like Passing, it is so focused on, in this case, a singular character, whereas Passing was too. But again, we'll talk about Kristen Stewart in a second. But Pablo Lorraine's direction, I think, is so focused on the idea of the monotony, but also the stark xenophobic traditionalism of the royal family, while also contrasting against, again, some of the most joyous moments of the year, like the stuff between Diane and her kids, um, is just so lovely and so endearing, and I think just works so well, with maybe one of my favorite endings of the year that combines both of those facets of, you know, light and dark so well, uh, only enhanced more by Claire Mathen cinematography, who I really am just praying she gets awards recognition. I think her, her she makes it look so good and it's so gazy and the, the colors work so well that when they're there, the lighting is all there. And again, Lorraine's direction just supports all of it. Uh, Johnny Greenwood's score is immaculate. And this is a year where we can praise a lot of Johnny Greenwood's work. I think this might be his best. Again, Tower of the Dog has something to say about that. But the seemingly string quartet from hell, I love what he does with that as to divine it. But the movie is Kristen Stewart's. Uh, and if she doesn't get an Oscar, it's, excuse my language, it's a damn shame. Uh, she is tremendous in this. If you have any reservations about her as an actress, watch this. She outdoes everything she is asked to do. The nuance she brings to Diana as a character and as a figure of, again, that system who is just trying so hard to like and respect it, but also just be a good mother to her family and the trauma that you see her go through firsthand, the relationship she has with uh, Sally Hawkins in the movie is just beautiful and haunting and tragic and it made me feel just all the things if i may go to internet lingo i just love this movie so much and the more i think about it the more i think there's so much more depth to it than it's getting love this movie to death and i can't wait to revisit it so for my number three it is it might be a hot take uh (laughs) my number three is the french dispatch so my hot take my hot take is that i think it is it is my favorite Wes Anderson movie that he's made so far. And I know that's huge between the Grand Budapest Hotel, Moonrise Kingdom, et cetera, et cetera. I loved Isle of Dogs, but I had so much fun with this movie. I was like enraptured with it from beginning to end. 
And it's because, again, ensemble cast is a standout. And I feel like this is the most Wes Anderson movie that he's ever Wes Andersoned. And in a way, it worked for me because it was so stylistically creative. And of course, I'm biased, but it was definitely, again, a love letter to journalism. I keep saying love letter or nostalgia or whatever keywords, but it's true. Honestly, it's like, you know, if you're a journalist, there are lots of funny inside jokes in there about editors totally slashing everything. And um, just like it, there was this kind of charm to it that I absolutely loved seeing in The French Dispatch. And the stories were so diversely different but they still were very cohesive as one for this magazine, you know? But yeah, that's why French Dispatch, my number three, and the hot take again is I think it's my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Oh my gosh, here we are. We are at the top two of our What's 10. What's gonna of, happen? Of our 10, Nobody knows. Okay, honestly, you could have named 100 movies each. Neither of you would have guessed that this was my number two. And I kind of can't even believe it, but- Lo and behold, this is what the list has resulted. So looking at my list, I think when I was making this, I thought, you know what? There's not enough horror at the top of my list. I was like, I can't have two happy, singy, songy flicks, spoiler alert, for my top two. So what did I break it up with? You got that right. Directed by Leigh Janiak, or Janiak, that's how I'm going to pronounce it. I, I apologize if that's the mispronounced spelling. It is Fear Street... 1978. Did that make it to anyone's top list? Brandon? I was going to say, Perry Nemiroff from Collider put it on her list. It's number one. Yes! Oh my God! That's wonderful because I want to make sure I'm not crazy in thinking that this is a good film. Um, so Fear Street 1978, I said that I was going to steer clear of sequels, but Netflix really took a weird direction with this movie. It released a trilogy that wasn't like the tr- like a trilogy in the traditional sense, I guess, because the way that we're exploring this tale across Fear Street, you know, they're based on books is we're looking at three different time periods. So we're looking at 1994. That was the first movie. The second movie is 1978. That's the one that made my top 10 list as number two. And the third movie is Fear Street 1666. So... This movie for me, this captured the seventies so excellently, made me, made me groove and jam while I was there. Um, it's campy, hee hee, but the right amount of supernatural and bloody. Um, when these Fear Street movies released, they were, uh, back to back, I think across three weeks and it felt like you know, watching this with my siblings, it was, um, it was at a time when we were, we all had the time to sit down and watch like the three of them on a couch. And it felt like we were unraveling a mystery with them. You know, we don't keep up with the same characters as main, as main protagonists across these three films. So in this middle entry, we really just feel like we're, we're unraveling the mystery at its bloodiest because, um, it's a, it's a camp slasher tale. I, I grew up with some, with something like sleepaway camp in my memory. Um, of course you have the Friday the 13th. And so, uh, to see, to see this, uh, Netflix horror film really pleasing in the middle of summer, it was exactly what I needed. So number two for me on my top 10 is fear street, 1978. I'm glad to see it there because you're right. I had not seen a little list since it's because it was a phenomenon for Netflix. I'm glad it's getting recognition for that. I there's a thing with my list where it seems like every year I find like a late December movie that comes out that I was not expecting to like all that much. And that just shatters every expectation for my top 10 list. That was what Ben Cleary's swan song did for me. Have, Have either of you seen this yet? No, I haven't seen it yet. This is my introduction to it. Yeah, no, I haven't seen it. Quick rundown, Mahershala Ali, it's his first leading dramatic role. Uh, he stars as a man with cancer. He's married to Naomi Harris. 
He goes to this facility where Glenn Close is a doctor who has been leading in this really groundbreaking but controversial research where essentially the person is cloned on a molecular atomic level. The clone goes back to live with the family, healthy and alive, and the person lives out the rest of their days in this resort so that they don't have to hurt their family. It's a movie that brings up a lot of questions of morality and family discourse and just personal trauma and like where that can lead to. But oh my God, I... I couldn't believe how much this movie affected me. Uh, but again, like what Mahershala Ali does in both roles, uh, both as his original and as the clone, I think there's such a great kind of insightful back and forth to it that he managed to go behind that he works with Ben Cleary, who also wrote this as far as the uh, screenplay goes. I, I just really like the back and forth between it all. It's poignant. It really has a lot to say. Yes, it can bear on the little bit of a little too over sentimental. I'll give you that. But when it works, it really hits. You feel Mahershala Ali as a performer has never been better. I don't think even in Moonlight, you know, for the Oscars and everything. I just think he embodies so much of the difficult decision making that comes with a movie like this. And I think Sam might go into a similar movie as this if I know her list. Uh, But I think in regards to this movie as a whole, I was just really impressed by how the tough topics he was able to go come across. The supporting cast involved, again, Naomi Harris and Glenn Close, they have great moments, but really it's Mahershala Ali in this dual role that is a dual character study that Ben Cleary imbues with heart and genuine thought about, again, death and what that can affect the family as. So if you have Apple TV, it's streaming on there right now, please go see it. I've heard no one talking about this except for Mahershala Ali, I think getting like a critic's choice or something like that. Uh, But again, I think it's brilliant. I am like ears perked on that uh, review of yours. Like we'll be talking about this in the next episode for sure. I hope. Yeah. And I didn't think much of it either. Cause I remember when the screener came out and, and I felt bummed cause I'm like, Oh, I, I can't, I have something, but it looks good. We Glad all think it's out. really as good as it looks. Yeah. We really missed out. <laughs> going to have to add that to the watch list. And so just for the sake of time and everything else, my number two is Spencer. So Brandon already perfectly covered everything I would ever want to say about that movie. I'm just going to reiterate that Kristen Stewart is phenomenal. And the whole movie just brings out this wonderful air of like, like eeriness. It's very haunting. And I love that. And especially like, you know, with Pablo Lorraine um, directing it, I really appreciated his work because I actually like Jackie quite a bit. And so it was nice to see consistently for me that um, Spencer also was really good for me. So um, I don't have anything else to add to Brandon's wonderful uh, review of it. So Spencer's my number two. And now we finally made it to number one. What's it going to be? What's going to happen? I'm actually very scared. Oh my God. (laughs) Okay. I'm really worried that Brandon and I have the same number one. That would would be hilarious. We don't? You already know? Because I know what your number one is and it's not mine. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Can both of you tell me what my number one is? Actually, uh, oh, well, is it, is, it, is it what I think it is? It's exactly what you think it is. Stop the clock. <laughs> it's tick, tick, <laughs> boom, baby. Directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda. How could it not be tick, tick, boom? I have been, you said I was riding a high for No Time to Die. Uh, even higher for tick, tick, boom. I, I didn't even watch this movie like in the best setting. I remember laying down in bed. It was like maybe even past midnight. And I just told myself, you know what? I really want to just uh, watch a movie right now. Like I feel like falling asleep to a nice little uh, chill movie. And I saw that Tick, Tick, Boom had just released. So I thought, oh, what the hell? I'll throw it on. I had some, I had a pair of headphones in because I was not going to take that with my regular, regular just iPhone audio. Um, I decided I wanted at least a nice plugged in experience. And oh boy, was it an experience. 
Andrew Garfield's Best Actor Golden Globe winning performance as Jonathan Larson is so deserved. I want to sing its praises myself. But if that's what you want to hear, you should stand outside my shower because I'm singing it every single day. Um, it makes me love the fact that I grew up as a theater kid. And um, I, I think nowadays, like there's so many TikToks that make you cringe over the fact that you're the theater kid growing up. But now uh, seeing a movie as beautiful as this about a creator who um, brought so much life and heart to their work and um, the ending of this movie is is that beautiful moment that pays to the memory of Jonathan Larson and what bringing his art to the world meant for him. Um, the musical numbers, like I said, are on repeat for me. Uh, I loved seeing the, uh, because it's a play that's based around like writing itself, the way that the movie is directed, we have like Andrew Garfield on stage performing his life story about writing the story. So it's, it's so in like internal um, that you really have to watch it to experience its beauty and experience the phenomenon. Um, The Sunday brunch scene that Sam mentioned earlier was like a love letter, as she says to so many Broadway uh, familiar faces and um, Renee Elise Goldsbury is a face that comes to mind. And um, this movie just means so much to me. I'm like, I'm sitting here like fumbling over my words because I, I couldn't believe how much I loved this film. Um, it, it, it really pays to any artist who's thinking about, you know, how can, how, what's the best method for me to bring my, um, my work to the world. And this movie was inspiring for me. So um, I love everyone behind it and I hope that it means as much to you and I hope it impacts you as deep. So. I knew no matter what I was going to say about this, you would be able to articulate it more because you gave it a 10. Because I gave it a 10, baby, my first 10 on the pod. And uh, it is number one, Tick, Tick, Boom, directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Thank you. Thank you. My top 10 of 2021. My number one, uh, I'll go more into this for my article, which by the way, will be out sometime this week. Uh, I saw a lot of movies this year, probably too many movies. Um, and this was the one that midway through the year when I saw it, I knew I had a pretty good idea. This was either going to be number one or pretty high. And somehow it has stayed through it. And I totally believe in it. It's Edson Oda's Nine Days, uh, a movie that I know a lot of like festival nerds were talking about last year. This movie's beautiful. And that's the thing about my top three. They're all very subtle, small movies, which I don't know what says about me in 2021. Uh, but this is easily, I think, the one that impacted me the most between the idea of an arbiter looking at the lives of strangers and wondering what is the purpose of life and seeing souls around him kind of knowing where that goes, but also very scared of their own commitments and their own interests. And I think there's some kind of there's again this kind of deep anxiety to the movie that ends on this beautiful hope of ho- note of hope and i won't spoil how it ends but winston duke is for me the best actor of the year he's my best lead actor prediction he's not going to get it but he deserves it uh zazie beats benedict Wong, the whole cast are impeccable edson oda directs the hell out of this uh, i love the cinematographer from Wyatt garfield the whole movie is just a meditative piece on life and i think it's beautiful and i can't wait to revisit it so i know it's, it's probably no one else's but i adore nine days you know, I actually heard that from quite a few critics. A lot of people put nine days up there in, in like their top tens. So you're not yep. that far off and I'm glad to see it. <laughs> and I, but I no, think I, I know yours. Yeah, I was going to say Brandon uh, knows how predictable I am. But <laughs> Mass, Mass is my number one. Yeah. I just could not believe how much I loved Mass and not enough people were talking about it. I absolutely adored it so much. It was definitely my favorite of the year. It's a depressing movie for sure. But it's 
the idea of being like a fly on the wall for me in this movie because it's such a serious topic it's unfortunately relatable to a lot of high school students and parents in the last 10 years unfortunately but um just after school tragedy we kind of sit in on this this overgrown therapy session that's just kind of glorifying it in a way like over glorifying it but um you have two sets of different parents one is the perpetrator's parents and one is a victim's parents and it's just it's a phenomenal for how emotionally invested viewers can get into it and i feel like it's done really well again the pacing's really good and fran Kranz for the directorial debut and for writing it i think it's such a strong start for fran Kranz. and so absolutely my favorite movie and it's really nice especially just shout out to the four the parents like the actors who play the parents are just phenomenal and they bounce off each other really well in my opinion especially a shout out to martha flimpton who's normally in comedies we normally see her in those and this was just probably the most serious role i've ever seen her in and she kills it so um yeah absolutely love the movie can't say enough about it it's criminally hard to watch so good luck finding it if you can find it somewhere but it's it's such a good movie and it needs more attention at the award shows all right, real quick, let's recap our list. I will go first. Uh, my top 10, uh, 10 through 1. Number 10, Ryan the Last Dragon. Number 9, Tick, Tick, Boom. Number 8, Dune. Number 7, My Only Tie. Come on, come on, and Nomadland. Number 6, Passing. Number 5, Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. Number 4, The Mitchells vs. the Machines. Number 3, Spencer. Number 2, Swan Song, the Ben Cleary version. And number 1, Nine Days. Noah, your top 10. My number 10, Malignant. Number nine, Shang-Chi and the Legend of Ten Rings. Number eight, Dune. Number seven, Last Night in Soho. Number six, Eternals. Number five, West Side Story. Number four, No Time to Die. Number three, Cyrano. Number two, Fear Street 1978. And number one, Tick, Tick, Boom. Sam. And for, oh yeah, thank you. For me, uh, number 10, A Quiet Place 2. Number nine, Dune. Eight, West Side Story. Seven, Tick, Tick, Boom. Six, The Mitchells versus The Machines. Five, Belfast. Four, Spider-Man No Way Home. Three, The French Dispatch. Two, Spencer. And one, Mass. Ah, we did it. We, we did it. We did our very different list and our very predictable list, and they were all intertwined, and we did it. Thank you all so much for listening. We're on a timer right now. We got to go. Listen, just while we got you real quick, Spotify and Apple Podcasts at Plot Devices, Twitter and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. Go follow us there. You can follow us our, uh, on our updates when they come out. Uh, of course, go follow Samantha and Corvaya. Sam, your social media behind it real quick. Yeah, Twitter at S underscore Incrovaya and Instagram at SamIam520. Don't have much going on except for a moonfall screening, and that's about it. The moon's going to fall to Earth. We'll talk about it eventually. From myself, from Noah Guzman, and from our guest, Samantha Incrovaya, this has been Plot Devices, and we'll see you guys in 2022. Woo-hoo!